Father in heaven, that's how we address you. We belong to you. We don't have to ask if we can come into your presence this morning. You have spread your arms wide and said, please, your Father, please come. What we really want to ask as we dive into your word is that you would do the miracle of having your word mold and make our hearts so that we don't leave the same as we came, changed, transformed by the unhindered work of the third person of the Godhead. Amen. Let me throw up a, I know we're not in biology class, but let me throw up a picture. And it's coming. There you go. You recognize that? You recognize that, right? Beating in your chest. Let's talk about the heart. I'm no cardiologist. You knew that. But let me talk about some facts I've learned. Of all the living creatures, the fairy fly, it's a kind of wasp, has the smallest heart. That must, I mean, that must that just be on the, the pin point. And then there's a shrew that has the fastest, 1,200 beats a minute. The American pygmy shrew. I kind of picture anything with that kind of heart rate. I mean, it's got to have high metabolism. It's just got to be an, an energetic little booger and... and and he, he's got to be happy with that kind of heartbeat, 1,200 beats a minute. You got to be just, just a happy little guy. Shrew, happy little shrew. <laughs> Speaking of fast, though, you ladies have a faster heartbeat than the boys. Beat slightly faster, but ours is slightly heavier. Our, our heart's about two ounces heavier on average. Girls are faster, boys are heavier. I think that's the only way to say it, because if you said it the other way, it just wouldn't, just wouldn't come out right. The human heart beats about 115,000 times each day. 115,000 times. Pumping, what, about four teaspoons of blood out each time. 20 or 2,000 gallons of blood are pumped through your heart every day to 60 thousand miles of blood vessels. I took a drive this week to Grand Junction. My family was with me. We were over there to speak for their, their school. First time that we have visited that little valley. And I'm seeing the signs going through the mountains, right? 200 miles. 200 miles. Whew. But that's not 200 miles. 60,000 miles of blood vessels. All right, here's one, an unabashed invitation, a little commercial break here. Marathon runners of any speed, if you are willing to run 26.2 miles, you have a 45% chance, less chance of heart disease. 45% less chance of getting heart, of any speed. So you don't have to worry about the two-hour, breaking that two-hour goal on a marathon. Just break Break any goal. Just run it. And your f chance of heart disease. All right. See, that was a real crowd pleaser there. 
Um, well, unfortunately, heart, heart attacks are, we're all too familiar with them. We've lost loved ones to them. We worry about them. And wouldn't you know it, Mondays, Mondays, of all the days of the week, Mondays are, are, have the most heart attacks, which just makes the perfect argument that we should go from Sunday right to Tuesday. But we've always known that. We should skip Mondays. Speaking of, uh, we can't skip though, the, the most, the day that has the most heart attacks on it is Christmas. Number two is the day after Christmas. Number three is New Year's. That's a bummer. There's such a thing as broken heart syndrome. You, you don't, not very, it's rare to die from a broken heart, but you can. A rush of stress hormones on your heart is known as a broken heart, broken heart syndrome. Well, we've heard about open-heart surgeries. The first one was performed in 1893 by an African-American cardiologist, Daniel Hale Williams. What it would have been to be like Dr. Williams doing an open-heart surgery, never, and nothing recorded. Anybody's ever done that before. But we are thankful for his first step, Dr. Hale Williams. All right, that's about the heart. Now we know. We're going to come full circle to that. Grab your Bibles, though, to a verse we have just visited a couple of weeks ago. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. This is Jesus talking to his early church. Hey, let me give you the playbook here. You're going to be my witnesses. The Greek word for witness is martus, from which we have the English word martyr meaning they gave all of their lives. It doesn't mean they were killed for it, but it means they gave all of their life. They were emptied for the sake of Jesus. You will be my witnesses. To how far? We talked about this two weeks ago. To the ends of the earth. How far? To the end. How, where should I go? To the end. Just keep going. You don't have to worry about you're going to go too far for God. You just keep going to the ends. When you get to the end of the earth, then you've gone far enough. Turn around there. And Paul. Paul, who was not, did not hear Jesus. He was not there in Acts chapter 1. Well, he was around, but he wasn't on the right side, as you know. So then here comes Paul saying, hey, guys, Acts chapter 13. This is what the Lord has commanded us to do. So it must, have, it must have been a repeated saying. If Paul heard it, it must, everybody must have just said, hey, Jesus told us to go to the ends, go to the ends, go to the ends. Hey, Jesus told us to go to the ends, go to the ends. It must have been repeated enough that Paul heard it and he carried it forward. He said, hey, guys, God commanded us that we have to go to the end. He said, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Go to the ends of the earth. And from that early Christian church came the DNA embedded in Christianity that we have to go. Go with what? Go with the hope of Jesus. It's for every nation, every language, every race, every person on the planet. There is not somebody too rich, too poor, too far, too close. We've got to go. And some of the most gripping and mobilizing stories that have ever been told. You can't make up better stories than missionary stories. You can't. 
Some of the best stories on this planet have been of missionaries telling the greatest story that can be told. Their hearts, you can just hear it in the stories, their hearts are broken. They're beating for the lost of sharing Jesus, a crucified, soon coming king to everyone. Two weeks ago, we started our little series with William Carey, the father of modern missionaries. And his line, his first sermon, became his most famous line. What was it? Put it on the screen for you. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And it's in that order. When we come to the expectation, it informs our attempts. You can't attempt without the expectation. And so, so Carrie would tell his Tell everyone, tell those who are listening, listen, you've got, to, you've got to come to the realization who God is, what his passion is for the lost world. Then you will go in ways that you have never gone. You will attempt things you have never attempted before. On my drive to and back from Grand Junction, I'm, I'm thinking through this hymn, leaning on, the, leaning on the everlasting, leaning on the everlasting arms. And then that line, safe and secure from all alarm. And I just played it out in my mind. This is to me. This is God's word to me. Maybe it's a little bit to you. I wonder whose arm I'm leaning on. Am I safe and secure because I have protected myself? I have built a box, of a financial box, a savings account, Roth IRA. I've built a social box. These are my friends. Is, is, my, is the arm I'm leaning on, is the reason that I'm safe and secure because I've made my own plan? Or am I really really leaning on the everlasting arm. Ah, God made it clear to me, Michael. It's not, that, that's not the song. Not leaning on your arm, and that's how you got safe and secure. You're leaning on my arm. You're leaning on my arm, and that will put you in a place that's safe and secure from all alarm. William Carey's <clears throat> line, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, Call is an invitation to step out of the box and the, the protection I have made socially, spiritually, financially. Step out. These words of William Carey were the words that inspired David Livingston. I want to talk to you about David Livingston, the great missionary to Africa. Some biographers call him the greatest missionary to Africa. He was inspired by the line from William Carey, expect great things, attempt great things. He was also inspired as a young boy in Scotland, born in 1813, sitting on his father's lap and his grandfather, who helped mentor him. Hearing the stories that they would tell him of missionaries that they had been told. His grandfather or his father, neither one a missionary, his, his father was a tea salesman. A tea, like a, like a warm beverage tea. I'm guessing it wasn't herbal that day in that time, that place. But it's said that, that, the, that the Livingston home, it was a small home, reeked of tea. You just, you, you, your clothes smelled like it, you went out everywhere, everybody knew what your dad did for a living because you smelled like a like a tea bag walking by. Right, age 10. Here's a, here's a little word for... Well, okay, so, so, so Livingston David is sitting on his 
daddy's, daddy's lap and he says to his dad, Daddy, I want to be like one of these missionaries. I want to go. I want this for my life. Age 10, he had to go to work 14 hours a day in a cotton mill. 14 hours a day. Puts a little on my complaints. Afterwards, he would do his studies. He taught himself Hebrew and Latin. At age 25, he's been working in this cotton mill. At age 25, he meets a missionary, a real live, in the flesh missionary. Robert Moffat, a veteran missionary from the southern part of Africa. Robert begins to tell him the tales of mission service. And David Livingston begins to pray and dream like never before. And then Robert gives him this line. He says, David, the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been before are burning today. And David Livingston cannot get that line out of his head. It rattles around. And he says, I, I got to go. I got to go to where they've never heard the name of G Jesus, where the smoke of a thousand villages. And he goes. He goes with Robert's family, Moffat family, to southern Africa and works at their mission station for 10 years, in the middle of which he was rewarded with marrying the boss's daughter, Mary. But after 10 years, he is restless. He said, I, I can't just stay at a mission statement. I've got to go. There's the rest of the continent of Africa. We've got to push this to a thousand villages that haven't heard. So he hits the, hits the exploration trail, taking Jesus with him. His object, his goal, as he describes it, was to create a missionary road. He called it God's Highway into the heart of Africa where missionaries and others can follow because Africa was a great unknown. There, there wasn't a map, a trail of, hey, you get on this river, you float down it, and you'll get to these people. Nobody knew where some of these rivers went. And so travel was, was incredibly, uh, it was really impossible because you didn't know where to go or how to get there. So David Livingston began to press into the unknown. I want to put, his, put a map up. You won't, you won't get a great view of this, but from a distance. Here is a map of, of David Livingston's travels. It looks a lot like, very similar, to the, to the map in the back of your Bible of Paul's missionary journeys. It's got David Livingston's first missionary trip. And you can see it coming uh, from uh, South Africa there, up. And then the second, and then the third, and then the fourth. It, it, it reads a lot like Paul's missionary journeys in Asia. Here's David Livingston then, pressing to the unknown, exploring and taking Jesus with him. One of his most epic, well-known exploration trips, a three-year trip from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean. He tracks the 1,700-mile-long Zambezi River. It's the home at one place of Victoria Falls. It's, it's said, I've, I've been there to Livingston, Zambia, and the falls. It's the, the tour guide there told me that when David Livingston first saw 
the mist. I mean, there's just an explosion of, of a cloud from that falls. The mist goes into the air. From a distance, he believed he had finally discovered the industrial heart of Africa. He thought it was a bunch of factories. And so he thought, this is it. I finally found where there, I mean, he had come from a cotton mill. He knew factory life. He said, there, there it is. It was a great big fall on the river. His goal, his, his goal was three part. Take the gospel, build a map, and get rid of the African slave trade. Enough of it, he said. It angered him. Of course, this war on his family. So the plan was made that his wife, kids would go home. Mary would go home for a bit. And he would join them as soon as he could finish the trip. They say some of the fondest, most romantic letters were exchanged between David and Mary during not the five months, but the five years that they were apart. Five years later, when he set eyes upon his wife, she couldn't recognize him. At one point, walking through the jungle, a, a, a tree branch had, had poked out his eye, and a lion had attacked him, dislocating his shoulder. His skin, which obviously had, had not been pigmented for, for that exposure, was crispy leather-like. He was hobbling with a marred face, disfigured, hardly recognizable. He arrived home hours after they buried his father. His one goal, a goal I should say, in getting back was to tell his father first-hand missionary stories. That would have to wait. It's said that when he would visit universities and classrooms, convocation in the British Isles, the students and faculty of the universities would stand and applaud. They believed he was a giant of a man. But he couldn't take it long. Eventually, he came back to Mary and he says, let me put the words on the screen. What her father had said to him, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages. In the morning sun is still burning within my heart. We've got to go back. So after a bit, they're back in Africa. Tragically, Mary contracts a disease and is buried on the continent of Africa. It said, the eyewitness account of that moment says that while David Livingston lowered his wife's body into her grave, he wept out loud and it was heard him praying, my Jesus, my King, my life, my all. I again consecrate my life to you. I shall place no value on anything I possess or anything I may do except it's in relation to your kingdom and to your service. On May 1, 1873, in northern Zambia, in a little village in northern Zambia. David Livingston asked to be left alone for prayer. After an extended period of time, those who had been helping him in the exploration work uh, 
came in to find David Livingston kneeling at his bed, dead. It's said then that he died the way he lived, in the presence of Jesus. As I stood there in Livingston, Livingston, Zambia, there in Africa, listening to the stories told, a man who had been willing to spend a day with me, I just, I asked, give me, give me a, an afternoon, tell me about David Livingston, walk me through the museum, tell me the stories as they're told here, and I will never forget the look of absolute pride on his face as a Zambian man who said, when David Livingston died, we, buried, we took his heart and we buried it in African soil. We believe, and this is what he said, we believe he gave his heart to us in his life. We took it in his death. And it's true. Livingston's heart is buried in Africa. They packed his body up and carried it for nine months through the countryside of Africa to where they could load it on a ship and send it back to where it's now buried in the Westminster Abbey. It took 11 months, nine months of them hauling it through Africa, but 11 months in all for it to be buried in April of the next year. What about this man's legacy? Exploration, giving giving Africa a face. He created a, a face for Africa, a map of what it could look like. Sharing the gospel wherever he went. Doing whatever he could to get rid of the slave trade. It's noted that in a world where colonialism was trying to have its way, David Livingston established nationalism, African nationalism, giving Africa an identity. Stephen Tompkins, a historian, wrote, wrote a book, David Livingston, The Unexplored Story, a little play on words. The Unexplored Story. Livingston worked in Africa for 30 years. 30 years. How many converts could a man like David Livingston have with a passion, with a specter, the haunting specter, the smoke of a thousand villages of the morning, in the morning sun burning in his heart? How many converts did David Livingston have in 30 years, three decades of pouring his heart out? Well, it's a disputed number. So I'll give you both. Either it was one or none. 30 years of mission service and the number of converts credited to David Livingston is either one or none. And David Livingston believes it's none. He, he knows of the one convert, but he believes he backslid. Well, historians tell a different story. They believe that that's not so true. The one convert was a tribal chief named Sacheli. Sacheli converted to Christianity through David Livingston, but then later began to apply the Christianity that he had learned to the context of his people. And David Livingston didn't track with him because it wasn't the European version that he knew. And so he called him a backslider. He said, I had one convert, and that one convert backslid. 
But what David Livingston doesn't know is that Shelley took that gospel, the story of Jesus, and he implanted it into the context of his, his people. And it's said that 30,000 people came to know the name of Jesus because of Sicelli. I don't know if it was the right look or the wrong look. I don't. It's disputed. But here's the tribal chief. After David Livingston's death, he takes the gospel and he gives it to the people the way they know. And 30,000 people are said to have come to know Jesus because of the only convert that David Livingston ever had in Africa. Well, that's only part of the story. I think of those, some of those 30,000, they've, they've got to know that, hey, we've, we want to talk to David Livingston. The David Livingston that Sicelli told us about that introduced him to Jesus. And so there's going to be a long line in heaven that David Livingston had no idea existed. Who are you guys? Who are you? Well, we, we were part of, of the tribe of Sicelli. How can it be? But there's more. The work and exploration and advancement that David Livingston did in the continent of Africa created exactly what he dreamed to do, a highway for the gospel. And some 300 missionaries followed his journey and have spread out across that continent. And of course now, numberless have been inspired by his story. A man with arguably one convert We leave the consequences to God. We leave the consequences to God. You can claim to be in a hard place. No, I, the people that live around me, my community, they don't need the God. We leave the consequences to God. The question that comes is, does the smoke of a thousand villages burn in your heart? Does the rooftop of a thousand homes in a subdivision burn in your heart? Do 10 other co-workers burn in your heart? Does the face of someone that you know that God is bringing to your mind right now, does that name, does that face burn in your heart? Mary, David said, we've got to go back. But there's, you haven't baptized anybody. I've got to go back. The haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun is still burning within my heart. We need to go back. We leave the consequences to God. Our heart's the question. Is my heart burning for those thousand villages or those hundred rooftops in my subdivision or the ten people that I work with or the one person whose face God has given me. Psalm 51. Whew. Come on, you've prayed this prayer, the prayer of David, no doubt, dozens of times in your life, right? It's the create in me a clean heart. Oh, God, I've sinned again. Like David, I've sinned again. I mean, he, he, this was a bad sin. This was a murder. This was a lie. This was adultery. Here's David. Oh, God, create in me a clean heart. We'll pick it up in verse 10. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Jumping to verse 
12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit, a willing heart to sustain. David's prayer is give me a pure heart, God. Change the heart I have. Take the stony heart, right? Out, give me a heart that is moldable. What does David say next? What is the next line in his prayer? Then, what comes after the, the new heart? Then, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Whoo! We've always stopped with restoring to me the joy of your salvation. God says, yes, I want to give you a new heart, Michael. But the new heart, the pure heart that you're asking for is a missionary heart. No, God, I, I'm just talking about me. I don't want to leave the box I'm in because it's financially, socially secure. Well, God says the only pure heart that I offer is the missionary heart. We've always stopped before we get to 13 because that's scary. But David's prayer was, God, I know, I know when you give me a new heart, it will be a missionary heart and and with that new heart, I will take it and I will teach sinners, transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back. I, the pure heart that God wants to give you, is a missionary's heart. There is no other heart that God gives. So be careful what you ask for. God, give me a new heart, create in me a clean heart. God says, I'm on it. Go tell your neighbor, go tell your coworker, pack your bags and go to Africa. The only heart God gives is a missionary's heart. Well, that's interesting. A heart that's broken for the world around. That's the only heart God gives? Yep. And that's the only heart God has. John 19. John 19, verse 33 when they came to Jesus, that's the soldiers, and found that he was already dead. This surprised them, of course. The crucifixion was not so much a method of death as it was a method of, of torment. They didn't expect you to die on the cross. They just wanted to keep you barely alive and make you suffer. The death came later after they pulled you down from the cross, broke your legs, and threw you on the pile. Then you died. But when they came to Jesus... They found that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. Verse 34, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So I went, you've heard, you've heard the testimony of different physicians who have looked at this and said, hey, wait a minute, there's something here. I, I took two of them on... Dr. C. Truman Davis, graduate of the University of Tennessee College of Medicine. He says, hey, look, look, you read this verse, verse 34. That legionnaire who drove his lance between the ribs upward through the pericardium and into the heart, there was an escape of watery fluid from the sac surrounding the heart and the blood of the, inf of the interior of the heart. He said there wasn't a lot of blood Relatively, there wasn't a lot of blood left in Jesus' body, period. But in the interior of the heart, there's still, still holding the blood. He says, this is Dr. Davis, 
This is rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died not the usual crucifixion death or by suffocation, but of heart failure, heart failure because of the fluid, the pericardium. I admit, I already told you I'm not the cardiologist. He says, ah, he died of heart failure, of a broken heart. Dr. David Ball, physician there in the state of Mississippi who, who, who birthed a ministry called The Cross Ministry, when he came to this, these conclusions, said, I've got, to, I, I've got to have a ministry that I can just tell people. He believes, Dr. Ball in Mississippi believes that because Jesus' hands would have been tied to that beam, he would have been tied to the beam or tied behind his back, that when he stumbled and fell, he would have fallen, obviously, face first, and he would have... He would have injured both his face and even his heart. He said, it, it's clear. John is convinced it was the heart of Jesus, the broken heart of Jesus that he died from. So that makes poetic sense. That God is looking for those whose hearts are willing to be broken to tell the story of a God whose heart was broken. It's poetic. God is calling for us, our hearts, to be broken for a world in need. A world in need of the story of a God whose heart was broken for them. The broken hearts inside of us will provide the telling of the story of a, of a God with a broken heart. And those two broken hearts, ours and His, will heal hearts forever. So what about your heart? Let me put that picture back up. What about your heart? Is it all about the 115,000 beats or 2,000 gallons? What about your heart? It's not... It's not so much the question of your physical heart at all, but does the smoke of a thousand villages burn in your heart? Does the rooftops of a thousand homes in your subdivision burn in your heart? Does a group of young people burn in your heart? Does a neighbor, a face, a friend, a coworker? Though they burn in your heart. I've taken, in my own discipline of prayer, every morning taking this prayer of David Livingston that he was heard to have prayed when he lowered his wife Mary into her grave. My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again consecrate myself to you. I pray that prayer every morning. Because I want my heart to be broken. I, I, I've checked it out. I'm not a cardiologist, but it doesn't take a cardiologist to know your own heart. And I've found that my heart is not the pure heart of Psalm 51. It's not the missionary heart. That sometimes my own safety and my own security is what burns in my heart, not the smoke of a thousand villages or the rooftop of a thousand homes. My own security, my own safety burns in my heart. I've told this story, and I'm going to keep telling it because it's just 
a story that speaks to me. Henry Morrison, a missionary to Africa from the U.S. Him and his wife, after a life of service, are finally coming home. And they've sent word ahead that they're coming in to New York. And they're on this ship. And Henry tells his wife that all he wants is just somebody to be there to recognize the years of service that they have given to tell people about Jesus. And wouldn't you know it, when they get to New York, the dock is packed full of people waving and smiling. And Henry, for a moment, thinks this is way more than I could have ever asked for until he realizes that they're not there for him, that Teddy Roosevelt is on the same ship coming back from a, a big game hunt. And when Teddy Roosevelt and all of the people are gone, there's no one left except for the dock hands and they're finishing their work. For the next week and a half, Henry sinks into depression in their one-room apartment in New York City. All he said, all he said to his wife is, I asked, for, I asked God for one person, one person. About a week and a half into this depression, he's in his, in his room praying, and he comes out with a smile on his face, and his wife, of course, notices a week and a half, he's just not, not been able to smile, and she says to him, What's, what do you know different? He said, I've been asking God all this last week and a half, God, why? Why couldn't you send one person to welcome us home? And God told me this morning, he finally answered me. And he said, Henry, you're not home yet. So just keep going. And when you do come home, I'll welcome you. We're not home yet. I want to invite our worship team. But I want to appeal to you. This each one reach one. This wasn't just a, a fun little ditty. A back room committee that we needed to come up with. Ah, Campy needs a little, a little motto, a little, a little mission cry. It wasn't at all that. It was that we believe that our DNA is the DNA of the early church. That Jesus said, I am sending you to the ends of the earth. Go, go tell someone, go tell everyone, go tell anyone. You heard Pastor Nestor invite you. You heard Eddie's testimony. This training, hey, I, we know it's an inconvenient. You're busy, you've got your own Sabbath schools. April 17th, April 24th, and May 1st, we know. But we said, what can we do to, to have a moment where, where we can invite as many as, as are here? There's no other time that as many people are here at this church than our Sabbath morning. We've got to provide an opportunity that they can be trained, mobilized, to be sent out, to reach one or to reach a hundred. That's God's business. So maybe you're saying, oh, oh, okay, I'm willing. So go, Come. April 17th, 24th, May 1st, you can't reach, you can't get to all of them? Can you get to two? No, just one? Fine. We'll take it. God will take it. The world needs. You say, I can't come to those classes, I'm a, uh, but uh, I'll go with Eddie. I'll go with Eddie. Fine, go with Eddie. No, I'll only go if a pastor goes with me because, because somehow, somehow, somehow pastors got it together. Well, you're right. 
All right, just let us know. We'll go with him, right? We'll go with you, whatever it takes. Come on. There's a smoke of a thousand villages burning your heart. There's a smoke of a thousand rooftops in your subdivision burning your heart. Do 10 coworkers burn in your heart? Does one name or face burn in your heart? Let's go. Let's stand together. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to Upstairs, if you could just put the connect number on the screen for us. I want to invite you. This connect number, if you're willing to try, you, it doesn't work on Sabbath morning, 
But you're saying, I'm willing to try. I, I want to go. I'll, I want to learn to share Jesus with somebody. If you'll text, if that's, if that's just the first step, 970-279-3432. Maybe you're watching online. Just text. We'll figure out a way that you can be a missionary. We have launched the Love and War, a series you'll hear more and more about. And there will be people in our community reaching out. 970-279-3432. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace until again we meet in worship. Amen.